When we first started, we were told by everybody I know, business consultants, friends, people who like had the best degrees, I said, this is a good idea, but it's going to fail. <laughs> and it's going to fail because, you know, the mission aspect is just too heavy. You want to bring peace through travel. Why People want to travel just for fun. And therefore, don't do it. You're going to waste your money. You're going to lose. You're going to end up broke. And we didn't listen, and we did it. Welcome to Social Entrepreneur. My name is Tony Lloyd. I'm a former Fortune 500 executive, but today I spend my time with changemakers who are making an impact in the world. We hear exciting stories of ordinary people just like you who are making a difference. They share their successes, their failures, and what they're learning along the way. Thanks for being with me today. Let's get started. Hi, and welcome back to Social Entrepreneur, and today's guest, Aziz Abu Sarah of Mejdi Tours. Now, Aziz is Palestinian, and he was shot at for the first time when he was seven years old. When he was nine, he watched his brother die from injuries sustained from soldiers. And as a high school student, he refused to learn Hebrew because he called it the language of his oppressors. But something happened when he was 18 years old. He realized he needed to learn Hebrew, and so he enrolled in Hebrew school, and there he bonded with other students over a love of, wait for it, country western music. Yes, Johnny Cash is a peace builder. So today, Aziz runs Meji, which is a socially responsible tourism organization, and they use a methodology they call dual narrative that brings both sides of a conflict together for a conversation. And he has a book out called Crossing Boundaries, A Traveler's Guide to World Peace. So here he is to tell his story, Aziz Abu Sarah. Hi, I'm Aziz Abu Sarah. I am the co-founder of Mejdi Tours and the author of Crossing Boundaries, A Traveler's Guide to World Peace. What is Mejdi Tours? Mejdi Tours is a travel company. It's an organization, a B Corp, that I co-founded with Scott Cooper, a Jewish friend of mine, which is kind of surprising because I'm Palestinian. The two of us worked in conflict resolution together, and we realized if we want to grow our influence around the world, we should go to an industry that, that really connects so many people together. And we realized in our conflict resolution world that just the world is so divided, kind of like what MLK said about often people hate each other because they fear each other. They fear each other because they don't know each other. They don't know each other because they cannot communicate and they cannot communicate because they are separated. And we thought travel is the best way to stop that separation, to connect people with each other, considering that, you know, the year before the pandemic, almost one and a half billion people traveled internationally every year. And so we kind of switched our conflict resolution to bring it into travel and make people travel, have fun, but also connect to others. I, I notice in your bio, it says you were born with no passport or citizenship in Jerusalem, and you ended up somehow, somewhere, connecting with a Jewish person and working on conflict resolution. So take me on that journey. How did you get here? So I, I grew up in Jerusalem, like you said, no passport, no citizenship. My brother was killed when I was 10 years old. He was 19. I grew up very angry. Actually, didn't have any Jewish or Israeli friends growing up until I was 18 years old. 
And when I was 18 years old, I went through a transformation. My anger, my bitterness, all of that started to fade away and transform, I would say, maybe then fade away into wanting to stop what happened to me from happening to others. Uh, And that happened when I went to study Hebrew. I studied Hebrew in a class where I was the only Palestinian and almost everybody else, most of the people in the class were Jewish immigrants to Israel. And in that classroom, I made my first Jewish friends. And from that point on, I understood that what divides us is a wall of ignorance, of fear, and of hatred. And I wanted to put cracks in that wall. That Mm -hmm. became my mission in life, whether it's through travel or other things. Well, fast forward about 10 years later, I've done a lot of work in Israel and Palestine in conflict resolution. I started to work with George Mason University in a center on conflict resolution, and I partnered with this guy, Scott Cooper, who also have gone through his own transformation. And we found ourselves actually working together in Afghanistan, in Syria, in countries like this, doing conflict resolution there for George Mason. And as we work together, we realized we just so united in our thinking. We have so much in common and we wanted to grow this idea, became best friends. And we totally like brothers. If you meet, except for the look, he's very white and blonde and blue eyes and I'm not. <laughs> except for the looks, we totally like brothers. We fight like brothers. We argue like brothers. And when we work together every day, we talk, I think, every day for at least an hour or two. What was it that made you want to go study Hebrew? Was it a pragmatic thing? You needed a job or how did that happen? Yeah, in Jerusalem, if you don't speak Hebrew, you're not going to go to college, you're not going to work. Your chances of success in life is really small. And in my high school, it was mandatory to learn Hebrew. But I went through uh, three years of high school refusing to learn even a word. I escaped from that class. I told my teachers I'm not willing to come to that class. Because to me, it was the language of the enemy, the people who killed my brother. That's how I saw it. I mean, first time I was shot at, I was seven or eight years old. So I had a lot of trauma that I had to deal with. It's still I, I have to deal with. And so when I was 18, I realized that if I don't learn Hebrew, I will not have any chance of success in my life. And so I went to study Hebrew totally focused on just how this is going to get my job. I actually remember thinking... I'm here to learn the language. I'm not here to make friends. I'm not going to talk to anyone, which apparently doesn't work if you want to learn a language. They force you you to sit together, ask questions. Hey, how are you? Are you from? What kind of music you like? And and that's how we became first friends. It wasn't over political things. It was over simple things about what coffee you drink and what music you like. And I love Western country music, which Palestinians do not agree with me on at all. And in that class, I found a couple of people who did. And so we would sit down and talk about Johnny Cash. And it started with that and eventually got to deeper conversation and political issues. But we had this space of, wait a second, we have other identities that we can connect with each other over. And it's not only you Arab, you Jewish, and therefore I have to hate you because of that. One of the most surprising things still happening to me every now and then, people will, you'll be in an airport and people will ask me, where are you from? And I'll say, I'm Palestinian. And they'll start saying horrible things about Jews. And the assumption is, oh, well, you're Palestinian. You must hate Jewish people. I'm like, those things are not connected. No, I'm Palestinian. And my best friend and my partner in for the last 10 years is Jewish. And no, don't yeah. make those connections. I, I love that, that we see one another as multifaceted. The problem is when we see one another as monolithic, right? That we are one thing. 
And I'll have to look up the name of this person, but there's somebody who has this whole thing about sidling up beside. He talks about how my neighbor is Muhammad and my neighbor is Muslim, but my neighbor also has a kid on the same football team that my kid is on. And he also, he happens to like this particular kind of science fiction kind of writing. And he and I sort of bond over that. And by the way, we both love Chinese food and and just on and on. And Oh, by the way, he happens to be Muslim. And so it's when we stop seeing one another as one thing, it really helps us to understand the the, the multiple flavors and nuances, et cetera. So I love the idea of peace over Johnny Cash. I love that idea. <laughs> Who knew that Johnny Cash could be the unifier <laughs> for so many people? The thing that I find interesting about this is that you went from this sort of radical seeking revenge to this peacemaking reconciliation leader. And that transformation came by getting to know someone, right? So I love that part of your story. But you made this decision somewhere. How did you end up in the tourism business? It doesn't seem to me like it, it would be, oh, I know, let's start a tourism company. So how did that happen? Uh, tourism was something I was interested in since I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. And that's because I think I went to school, which was at the Aqsa Mosque, the most holy site for Muslims in, in the area, in, in Jerusalem, for sure. And tourists would come there and I'll be playing around. I was six or seven and they'll come and take photos of me. And I enjoyed that. I liked the attention, but I wanted to talk to them and they wouldn't talk to me because they, their guides would be herding them like quickly, quickly out. We need to go to another site. And so tourism was something I always was interested in. I learned English by going to tourists when I was like 10 or 11, asking them if they want me to take them around and show them. I didn't know anything, but I still offered my help. So it's something I always wanted to do. And as I've started doing conflict resolution work in all these destinations, Scott and I wanted to find a way to bring conflict resolution into a business that can transform the world. And tourism was just the the natural thing because so many people travel, but most of us travel and not meet people. We travel to another country, spend a week in a nice hotel. We see other tourists potentially, but we go from one side to another taking photos. Even when we meet people who are different than us, we take their photos. We don't talk to them. That's how many people travel, not everyone, but many. And What you mentioned earlier is exactly where we got to it. We realized that there's more than one narrative. There's more than one story to every destination. Now, the tourism ministry in every country wants this beautiful narrative to to sell you as a tourist, and I get it. But there is more than that. And that's true in Jerusalem. That's true in in the 20 more countries we, we operate in. No place has a single story. No place is homogenous 100%. Here in the United States, you take any country in the world, no place is homogenous. And I think the more we can show that there are more than just one story wherever you travel, I think it'll change the way we think about the world. And I hope that travel can encourage people to do that. We're more open when we travel. And it's exciting when you hear people's stories. It's the most exciting thing. Ibn Battuta said, he's an Arab traveler from 700 years ago. He said, travel makes you speechless, Mm. but then it turns you into a storyteller. Oh, I love that. And I wonder how many people travel around the world and come back home without a story to tell. 
That happens way more than it should. And if we all connect to the people where we travel, it'll change our lives, but it'll change the whole world we live in. I have to share just real quickly that my wife and I were traveling in Stockholm and we carry, we brought our dog with us, which we don't always do, but we had our dog and he was a cute little dog and he went on the trip with us. And so we were in a park and a woman came up to us. Her name's Ingrid and she had a little dog with her and she said, may I, may my dog meet your dog? And they sniffed each other. And so we started talking. We ended up at her house for dinner that night, cold cuts and wine and whatever. And we learned about her and her family and her backstory. And her daughter was going to the United States for university. And we met her husband and just, and like the richness of that experience in Stockholm, we were in Lisbon not that long ago. And we did basically what tourists do in Lisbon. We we rode the tram and got our pockets picked and we, you know, we did all the things that that people do when they go to Lisbon. But the depth of the experience was so lacking by comparison with that woman who introduced herself and we met her and her dog and her daughter and all, et cetera. But I like the other thing that I understand you're doing is really Part of it, too, is an economic development engine for local industry. So I, when Lynn and I, tra- my wife's name is when Lynn and I travel, we tend to stay in Airbnbs or in, in people's houses if we can, as, in as much as we can. Sometimes we'll even go to a dinner. Somebody will host a dinner in their home and we'll go to their home and we'll have a dinner, that kind of thing. But m- many people travel and they are in the Hilton, they're in the Hyatt, they're in the Sheraton, they're taking an Uber, they are like they're doing the things that the money is partially, at least in part, is extracted from that place and taken somewhere else. You're trying to do economic development of a local economy through this. So talk to me about your model and how that works. Yeah, absolutely. I think travel has the ability not only to help Uh, bring other narratives, but to also help the local communities who should be the ones benefiting from people traveling into their own countries, into their own cities. And so we do that in different ways. One is we partner with with local. Wherever wherever we work, we make sure that our partners are are locals, that the people we uh, hire are locals. The hotels you mentioned, we try to partner with local hotels, not only big brand hotels with homes where we do homestays. But sometimes to do that, you have to also help people get to that point where they can host others. It means training them and doing it. It means helping them figure out how do you deal with the tourists? What problems could happen when tourists come into your house? When you're cooking for them, what the expectations going to be? These are small things, but if you don't communicate it with the locals, that empowerment will eventually fail. So we spend significant amount of our time actually on helping local communities be able to welcome these tourists. Make sure that you pay fair wages. That's really important. I've been to countries where I would take a tour and then I'll ask, how much is this person being paid? And the numbers that would be given are are just absurd. And it's something I try to encourage travelers everywhere. Always ask, how fair is the person you're interacting with being uh, compensated? And if they not, it is your responsibility as a traveler. It is not just the responsibility of the company that hires them. In Israel and Palestine, we realized, for example, Palestinian guides we were hiring were getting paid less sometimes than Israeli guides. And we said, we won't do that. We will pay everyone exactly the same because you change up our structure by doing that. 
Uh, in Vietnam, I would we visited this woman farmer in her home, and I was asking how much the company I was contracting, working with local company, she was getting paid for us, and they told me one dollar per per visit, and I'm like, yeah, that's not gonna work for us. If you're gonna work with us, we're gonna have to change that model. So right. it's being always aware of those things and offering that ability to train people, bringing more community tourism mindset. In Chile, I went, I, I worked with the indigenous communities there and bringing them into the travel industry because people will go and tour their areas, areas they see as holy, as important, and then not even talk to them. And right. they wanted the tourists to come, but they wanted to also talk about their story that is yeah. not being recognized. And they need to get paid for that time, for them to tell their story. Why not? So I've spent a lot of time in Chile in doing those kind of trainings. So you're not only doing this economic development through your tourism, but you have this peace building model and you use a thing that is your trademark, the dual narrative. So what is a dual narrative? So it's a concept that started actually from my dad. He he came once to an event, Israeli and Palestinians meeting together, and he had no knowledge of the Israeli narrative whatsoever. And he asked horrible questions, totally horrible questions. I mean, one of his questions was about the Holocaust, and he knew nothing about the Holocaust. And it, it was like, so did this Holocaust happen or not? Which was horrifying right. for me that he asked that. Right. And right. as a result of it, we ended up setting up this tour, which took the Palestinians to the Holocaust museums and took Israelis to learn about Palestinian narratives. And so when we set up the travel company, I realized this is something lacking, is the ability to put two tour guides from different backgrounds together and have them lead the trip together. So that can be an Israeli and a Palestinian, a Christian and a Muslim in Egypt, a Catholic and a Protestant, a Unionist and a Nationalist in Northern Ireland, and so on in so many places. Now, often there are more than two narratives, but this is this kind of changes the whole concept of the tour from a guide preaching at you to a conversation where the travelers and the guides having conversation. And the question I often get, so it's all political, and it's not. Because if you go into Jerusalem, if you get an Israeli guide, you're going to connect with the Israeli culture, the Israeli art, the Israeli everything. But if you have both, you're going to get Palestinian culture and Israeli culture, Palestinian history and Israeli history. And you're going to get a much more holistic. The politics might be still 10, 20 percent, 30 percent of it, but it's not the only thing being discussed. And it just becomes so much more fun because it's a conversation. It's a relationship that the traveler gets to enjoy. So that's the goal of it. And then in addition to the tour guides, we try to bring in speakers who are not represented by those tour guides. They can be journalists, they can be indigenous communities, they can be refugees, they can be artists, they can be politicians, they can be so on, religious leaders. Just try to bring as many voices as you can. Every night we have a dinner with one of those people. And, And that just changes. You leave the country feeling, I got it. I understand this place much better. Maybe maybe I'm still confused about many issues, but now I understand complexities much more. In the middle of a pandemic last year, you launched a book. Talk about launching into a headwind. You're launching a book about tourism in the middle of a pandemic. Perfect so, timing. Perfect timing. But the, but the book, as I understand, it's called Crossing Boundaries, A Traveler's Guide to World Peace. So what? first of all, what compelled you to write the book? 
Uh, I wrote the book because I felt there are so many books about where we should travel, the top 10 destinations. If you go to this country, you go into France, here are the 20 sites you need to go to. Here's how you're going to go to these spots. But there aren't many books that talk about how we travel, how we connect with people, how do we meet people, what are the questions we should be asking, are doing one, two, three okay or not, is volunteerism a good thing or not, should I stay in an Airbnb or not. These are important questions that we all have, and I wanted to write about how we should travel, the things we should think about, what kind of cultural questions we should be asking ourselves. How do we pick even an operator? How do we find the right tour guide? Uh, can I meet? Can I ask certain questions or not? All these things that we often have in our minds, but we don't know. And I wanted to write a book to, to answer those questions. You went through the trouble of becoming a certified B corporation. And I know that is not an easy process. It's just so much you have to just prove in the first place. And then you're making some big commitments to say, we're going to continue to run this company in a manner that we've laid out here in this B certification. So why did you go after that? We went after that many, many years ago. Too. We went after it. I think we were the first or second global tour company that got it. And we wanted to do it because I, look, I can go on my website and say, I'm a socially responsible business. I'm a good business. Trust me. And there are many who would do that. <laughs> but I can't audit myself. I'm biased when it comes to my own product. I think our product is the best. And that's all of us. We think our product is the best. So we needed somebody else to come and look at our books, tell us how we are doing, and to challenge us and say, hey, you're not doing good in this area. You should look into that. You need to grow in this other area. So to us, we needed to make sure we're living up to the standards we are claiming. And as a business, I, I don't see business as a profit thing. I see business as a way to push our mission even more, the mission of bringing people together. And we need that help. We need the help that tells us here's where you can grow. When we started, the peace element was the strongest and we got better in the community tourism and getting people economically more connected. And now, even with the pandemic, we are realizing, for example, that we haven't worked much in the United States, which we hear my, our customers are mostly from the United States. And so we're starting to think about our tours and how they apply to the U.S., civil rights trips, dual narratives of, of a Republican and a Democrat leading yeah. tours together, which yeah. I bet you not, uh, I kid you not, it's probably harder than the Israeli-Palestinians <laughs> leading a tour together. Well, yeah. I, don't know if they, I don't know if it's harder, but it certainly is more in the news and urgent right now that we need to understand one another. I do love that idea. Um, and I know harder. that... Go ahead. Sorry. It's harder no. only in the sense we think of travel as something out of our area. And yeah. it's harder because it means we're traveling to see things in our home, learning the narratives in our home. And it's the hardest kind of travel. It's very easy for me, even when I talk about volunteering, it's very easy for me to go 5,000 miles away to volunteer. But crossing the street in my own neighborhood, meeting somebody who's different than me in my own neighborhood... That seems to be harder because it's more challenging. It's my own neighborhood. My right. most powerful trip was only 20 minutes walking from my home in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the most powerful and transformative trip is going to be always the most difficult. And it's going to be the one across the street from where you live. Yeah. Wow. So the the largest divide you're ever gonna you're ever going to cross is just crossing the street and getting to know your neighbor then. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so what's something on your journey that you have learned that you would pass on to early stage entrepreneurs? When we first started, we were told by everybody I know, business consultants, friends, people who like had the best degrees, I said, this is a good idea, but it's going to fail. <laughs> and it's going to fail because, you know, the mission aspect is just too heavy. You want to bring peace through travel. Why People want to travel just for fun. And therefore, don't do it. You're going to waste your money. You're going to lose. You're going to end up broke. And we didn't listen and we did it. And so the one thing I would say, don't give up on the mission for just the prospect of, oh, if I, if I have a mission that's really uh, about people and about making a difference, I'm not going to make a profit. That is not true. You can still make a living. You can make a profit. You can be a successful business and be a business that is focused on a mission to make this world a better place. These yeah. two things are not mutually exclusive. And many people around us sometimes try to, to convince us that, oh, it's not going to work. Just be a normal tour company. And we didn't want to. And now we are successful because we refuse to be just another normal tour company. There are too I many think. of those. Be different. Be unique. Be unique. Yeah. Now, honestly, if I had if I had invested in companies I thought was going to fail or not invested in companies that I just knew were going to succeed, I, I would be a lot better off right now <laughs> because I am terrible at picking the good ideas. The market knows the ideas better than I do. And so, so that's good advice is just go with it. And if people were looking for Mejdi and they were looking for you online, where would they look? For Mejdi Tours, it would be mejditours.com, M-E-J-D-I, mejditours.com. And for my uh, website, it's uh, azizabusera.com, A-Z-I-Z-A-B-U-S-A-R-A-H.com. What's something you would call on us to go and do as a result of this conversation? I would say travel doesn't mean you even have to leave your home. You can do travel sometimes even while you're at your house. Learn about something you don't know. Learn about a group you haven't learned about before, a community you haven't connected with before. Take some time. Right now, I know it's hard to meet people in person. Otherwise, I would have said, get out of your home, walk to a synagogue, walk to a mosque, <laughs> walk to a church that is different than you. And be amazed of how how warm uh, and sweet these people are going to welcome you just with so much love. And I've done all these uh, places. But now that we can go to places, just take the time to learn uh, about communities you don't know about. And don't assume everything you know is right. Be open mm -hmm. to, to be challenged, to break the stereotypes about other communities, other things you didn't know. Well, Aziz, thank you so much for being with us on Social Entrepreneur. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it, Tony. And thanks to you, the listener, for joining us today. You are the reason that we produce Social Entrepreneur. You can find the show notes, bonus material, and more at TonyLloyd.com. That's T-O-N-Y-L-O-Y-D.com. Well, listen, thanks so much for joining me today. And until next time, please remember to use this one short, amazing life and go make an impact. Thanks. We'll talk to you next time on Social Entrepreneur.